One of the most popular concepts for television shows is the makeover concept. I'm sure you're aware of this, that a show will take a, an old house, a dilapidated house, and totally renovate it for the sake of new owners. Or maybe even a person on some daytime talk shows, they'll take a person who's, who's out of style, hair and clothes and makeup, and they'll, they'll give that person a makeover, and they look like a totally new man or woman. Well, a few years ago, Jennifer and I got caught up in one of these shows. It was a show called Restaurant Impossible, where a guy named Robert Irvine would go into a failing restaurant and he would give it a makeover. He would totally overhaul the decor, the menu. He would retrain the chef and the wait staff, uh, just totally done over. And then the restaurant would have a brand new grand opening, a second grand opening of sorts. And it was always a really neat show to watch. Um, but it was interesting too, at the end of every show, after the credits rolled, there was a little paragraph that came up on the screen letting us know how the restaurant was doing three to six months after the fact, because those things take time from filming to air, right? So how are they doing? And you know the sad truth? That for maybe half of those restaurants, they had either shut their doors entirely or they had reverted to the same failing practices they had beforehand. And it always made me wonder, why didn't the makeover work? And really the reason is, the, the problems that those restaurants had went way deeper than just decor and menu. A lot of those restaurants were poorly managed. They were in debt. They had stubborn employees. They skimped on food quality. And see, those are things that no amount of makeup can change. And I thought about this uh, really a lot when I was preparing this message from 1 Peter chapter 3. Because what Peter tells us goes against that mentality that we can come to Jesus simply to receive like a spiritual makeover, that he can bring improvement to our life um, and, and just kind of make things a little bit better, and that would be for us enough. See, I think a lot of us, when we come to religion, we come because there's a deep need. There, there's, there's a crisis, perhaps. There's something wrong in our lives, and we think that perhaps religion, or specifically that Jesus could solve our problem. And so maybe there's deep conflict or there's pain, and we're looking for things to get better. I want meaning. I want hope. I need peace. I want joy. I want purpose. And so I come to religion or I come to Jesus. But see, the offer of Jesus is much more than that. Jesus doesn't specialize in spiritual makeovers. The thing that Jesus comes to do is not just to improve your life by adding in some things that are missing, but Jesus comes in to transform your life by making himself the center. I'll say that again. Jesus doesn't come just to improve things a little. Jesus doesn't come to just answer problems as they crop up. He comes to transform the totality of a person's life by becoming the center of our life. And so that means, for example, that Jesus does more than just show us where to find meaning, Jesus becomes your meaning for life, he himself. Jesus does more than just show you uh, where to find peace. Jesus becomes our peace, the Bible says. And so he doesn't come along just to dress us up. He comes to change us from the inside. And that's why the Bible is so adamant that a Christian life is a changed life. Not an improved life merely, but a changed life from the inside out. And that's really what's going on here in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
we're, um, to, to continue with the restaurant analogy, we're biting off a, a big chunk of scripture here. There's a lot to chew on today, okay? Peter's going to touch on three huge ideas that affect all of us really in, in, in a daily, on a daily basis, that affect us at the deepest level. Peter's going to address the issue of relationships, morality, and influence or witness. And his point here in chapter 3 is that Jesus transforms us at these most basic levels. Jesus brings transformation relationally, morally, and in terms of your influence, your witness to the world around you. And so we're going to walk through looking at those three parts uh, as they make up the whole of Peter's words here to us. Okay, look at verse 8 again, where we begin. Peter says to sum up, he's summing up much of what he said in chapters 2 and 3, okay? To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So, so Peter begins in verse 8 by talking to the church specifically about how we're supposed to treat one another within the church, okay? So this is a, this is, for Peter, is like a closed-door conversation. He says, this is how we treat each other when we're together, okay? And he says, uh, have harmony, sympathy, brotherhood, kindness, and humility. He gives us five qualities. And, and really to dig a little deeper into what he's saying, I can do it in one sentence. Peter says that in the church, we prioritize unity over individual preference, we share in the interests and concerns of others, not just ourselves. We have a growing fondness for one another, like a family. We actually like each other. That's what the scripture says. And we are compassionate toward each other, always looking for ways to honor the other ahead of me. Uh, one of the things the scripture says is to outdo one another in honor. How can I love you more than even I love myself? Right? That's how the church is supposed to act. Now, I, I'm assuming that all of us in this room would nod in agreement that these virtues are good and we ought to live this way. But this is so countercultural. And I, I don't say this as a way of attack, but when we look at the world of, of which we are a part, we don't see these qualities lived out or even really highlighted as virtues to say that this, this is the way we ought to live. And you know one of the ways I know this, strangely enough, is by watching kids' movies. Uh, we've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. We watch a lot of kids' movies, and kids' movies give us a window into the culture. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I, I just Disney or otherwise, here's, here's the basic plot of most of the movies that, that we watch with our kids. There's a child who has a dream, who has an ambition, a desire, and the parents of the child are in the way. They are the ones stifling the child's dream. They won't let the child really live out what he or she wants to do. And so the child runs off, escapes to go fulfill the dream. And at the end of the movie, the parents come around to see it his way or her way. And the parents are the ones who really learn a lesson at the end. And they all live happily ever after. Okay? Well, that whole idea is based on our culture's belief that your goal in life should be to identify the dominant desires and ambitions in your heart to discover your true identity and then to assert that identity over and above anybody else who might stand in your way, even your own parents. Figure out who you are and what you want to be and nobody gets to tell you otherwise and that's what it means to really live and to really be free. 
And in fact, if you remember the movie Frozen, that's what Queen Elsa sings when she runs off to build the ice castle and live by herself. She sings it. She says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And that is the dominant view of our culture. That's what movies are very subtly and not so subtly teaching our children that that's the way we ought to live. But see, in the church of Jesus Christ, in the church, the highest virtue is not my individual ambition. The highest virtue is love for another. Jesus said it. He said, a new commandment I give to you in John 13, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. And by this, the whole world will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. That's the highest virtue in the church. And so love requires, Peter says, humility, unselfishness, sympathy, where we try to put ourselves in other people's shoes. It's, it's entirely self Less. You don't lose your identity, you don't forsake yourself, but you set yourself to the side for the greater good of others. That's what it means to love in the church. You shoulder each other's burdens, you celebrate each other's joys, you can be happy for other people when they succeed, even if it's not your personal success. And see, this is one of the ways that the gospel of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, brings transformation to us. These are not stale commands that you can, that you can produce as, a, as an act of the will. These are issues of the heart. And so if, if Peter were speaking to us in, in terms of our own modern culture, perhaps, he might say that we lose our need to assert ourselves, to pursue self-centered ambitions, because that need, that deep identity that we crave has already been fulfilled for us in Jesus. He's already given us the deepest needs and cravings of our hearts and so we don't have to find those things outside of him or over and against other people. Uh, because of Christ, you can humble yourself, you can serve other people, and you don't lose your identity, you don't lose your dignity in the process. You can care more about others than you care about yourself because Jesus Christ has brought that transformation to bear in your heart. It's not, we're not a, a splintered bunch of individuals grabbing for what we can uh, whether it be uh, money, success, applause, approval, we're just trying to discover our identity, it's already been given to us. And therefore, we can serve one another from a place of fullness. Christ has already done it. He's, he's transforming our hearts. Now, the church will never be perfect in this. I'll never, I mean, not even close, will not be perfect. But we ought to be different. And one of the ways that, that the church is called to exemplify a distinction, a difference to the world is in how we treat each other. Not just how we treat everybody else, but how we treat each other. And, and you know, the church isn't always great about this. That's why the Bible has to command us to do it. But this is part of the, the transformation that Jesus Christ brings to us. Now, in verse 9, he broadens the, uh, the idea beyond just the church, and he actually begins to talk about how we treat the world, how we treat people who are not part of the church. In verse 9, you notice he says that we don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Um, when we're done wrong, the, the absolute natural thing to do is to get back, to try to get even, to, to get revenge, to balance the scales. Well, not only does the Bible say don't do that, don't, don't get revenge, it actually goes a step beyond that. It says... Pray for and bless the people who've hurt you. We're called not just to avoid evil, but to love those who commit evil against us. 
Now, we don't have to pretend like that's easy just because we're in church. I mean, it's, it's really borderline absurd. It's one of those places when people come to that place in the Bible where Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a place where a lot of people, we just throw our hands up and say, that's impossible. Okay, let's just acknowledge that it's hard. But you notice what, what Peter says, the attitude where it comes from at the end of verse 9, he, 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 he uh, qualifies this. He says, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You be a people of blessing because you were called to inherit a blessing. That means that, that God, of course, God has saved us to be a blessing to the world, right? But also he's given us the promise of an inheritance. Peter has talked about this at length, especially in chapter 1. We have an inheritance. To be a Christian is to have reserved in heaven for us all of the eternal riches and graces and blessings of Jesus. Nothing is held back from us because of him. We miss out on nothing. Why don't you think about that? You, you in this life, whether your life is short or long, you miss out on nothing if Jesus is your Savior. I heard a guy say this. This is a little rabbit trail, forgive me. I heard a guy say this last week, and it just struck me. I'd never thought of it before. He was talking about making a bucket list. You know, I want to go climb a mountain before I die. Can we make a bucket list? Things I want to do before I die. And he made this point. He said, do you think the last chance to climb a mountain is going to come for you in this life only? He said, do you think you're not going to be able to climb a mountain in the new heavens and the new earth? And his point was that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. We miss out on nothing in this life. We have an inheritance, and we are a people now who have been blessed with the eternal promises of Jesus. Now, if your hope is in this life only, then you do have to get back at people who do you wrong. You do have to balance the scales. You do have to go to court and make them pay because you don't have a hope that exists beyond this, right? But, but Peter's giving us a different perspective here. He doesn't say just love your enemies just because. He says love them because you are a people of blessing. You have an, you have an inheritance that, that Jesus will, will make right all the wrongs done on this earth. Okay? And you can live with that confidence. You don't have to make it right. You know he will. Jesus said it uh, in, in um, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I just mentioned that. He said, why? For then you will be sons of God. Which means, then you will give a picture to the world of who God is. And Jesus says, because even God is kind to evil and ungrateful men. When we do this, hard as it may be, backward as it may feel, we act like God. This is what God's like. God was kind to evil and ungrateful men. Who's, Peter ta uh, who's Jesus talking about in Luke 6 when he says that? He's talking about us. He's talking about me. I've been evil and ungrateful. I didn't deserve Jesus' love and salvation. And he was kind to me anyway. Okay, So this is what motivates us. We're called to treat both our friends and our enemies in a new way. Do you see that? Verses 8 and 9. Both our friends and enemies. We live in a new way because Jesus is affecting a change in us. It's a relational change, which affects most of what we do day to day. But Peter goes even deeper now than that. He says it's also a moral change. Uh, I don't know if you're, it, it, it might be that when it comes to relationships, some of us are pretty good at faking what we just read about. We can play nice. I try really hard to play nice and never offend anybody. And I might think that as a result, I'm obeying what the scripture is telling me here. And so Peter doesn't just leave it there. He's going to go deeper into something that just can't be faked. 
So look at verse 10. He's going to quote from Psalm 34 here about a person's morality, okay? And in verse 10, he says, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The one who desires life to love and see good days. I know for a fact that applies to all of us. All of us want this. But you know, Peter's not just talking here about this life, right? We've established that. He's already mentioned in the previous verse that we have an inheritance. He's talking about this life, yes, but also the life to come. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy that godliness has benefit for this life, of course, but also for the life to come. That is to say that how we live in the here and now has an eternal impact and significance and effect. And therefore, if we're going to follow Jesus in this life, we follow him into righteousness, true righteousness. I got schooled on this one time really, really good. Many times, actually. One time that I remember uh, distinctly, I was maybe a junior or senior in college. I was with my roommate, Adam. We were going one Sunday morning to church. See, I felt like a great guy. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm a college student going to church on Sunday. Isn't that something? And uh, I'm, I'm real proud of myself, and it just, it just came out in that moment. We were at a stop sign, a four-way stop at, at First Baptist Starkville. Me and Adam, I'm driving, and uh, we have to stop to let some pedestrians walk across the, from the parking lot across the street into church. And uh, we, I, we, but we see this guy that we know. He and his girlfriend are walking in, and I make the comment, what's that guy going to church for? What a hypocrite. Adam says, you can't say that. What, what's wrong with him going to church? And I said, well, look at his life. To which Adam replied, look at your life. <laughs> Conversation over. <laughs> I had nothing to say because he was right. Adam was right. See, I, apparently in that moment, I thought I was pretty good. I thought I was pretty righteous. But in reality, I was just self-righteous. And there is an entire world of difference between those two things. See, what Peter is saying here is not do good things and that will make you a good person. Do good things and that will make God love you more. What Peter has been saying is God has already loved you to the full. God has already accepted you fully by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now in response to his love, and acceptance. We pursue him. We pursue righteousness. And see, that's how the gospel changes our morality. Jesus doesn't just change what we do. He changes why we do it. He doesn't just change the externals. He changes the heart. And see, y'all, here's the truth. If I'm doing good things because I think it will make me better than other people, then they're not really good things at all. That goodness is a sham. It's fake. God will, rather than God rewarding me for that, I'll actually be punished for that because that is self-righteous. If I do good things simply because I think that God will have to reward me for my good things, I'm not doing those good things for God. I'm doing them for myself. And therefore, they do me no good. They're not good. That's why Peter doesn't tell us in this chapter to do religious activities and rituals. He doesn't focus only on the externals. He tells us to pursue goodness, to speak righteousness, to pursue God and his righteousness, because righteousness is a heart issue. It cannot be faked. It cannot be faked. 
We're all smart enough to know it when we see it. When somebody fakes righteousness, when they do it for their own good, their own benefit, we can see right through it. Jesus saw right through the Pharisees, right? And he calls us to have a righteousness that exceeds theirs, right? Because it's a righteousness that comes from the heart. It's a heart that's been transformed. And we see, so we see a clear transformation, right? In our relationships, how we treat one another, how we treat the world, it's backward. We see a transformation that comes to our morality, not just what we do, but why we do it. God changes our hearts. But it's really this third thing that I mentioned that challenges me the most. Influence. Witness. Um, if, you've, if you know a lot about the, the book of 1 Peter, the letter that Peter's writing, he's writing it to a church that is being marginalized. The culture around them is persecuting them because they are Christians. They are suffering for their faith. That is, for us, maybe a foreign idea, but it was happening uh, in an extreme way here in the Roman Empire, in the early church, and Peter calls them, in the midst of their suffering, to a very strange thing. He doesn't say to them what I might be prone to say, which is, y'all just hunker down, go on the defensive, try to take care of yourself, right? Peter actually says, you courageously go on the offensive, and we see that in how he calls them to influence. Verse 13, he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Uh, Peter's command, obviously, his command is that we live out the message of Jesus. Live it out. But that's only half the story. He also tells us to speak it forth, to proclaim it. And a lot of times I live on the other half of this. I tend to think if I'll just live a good life, be a good person, then I'll have an effect on the world around me. And there's truth in that, but it's not true enough. The Bible doesn't stop there. Throughout the scripture, we're called not to just live a moral life, not to just set a good example and have a clean conscience, but we're called to proclaim the grace of Jesus to those in our midst. And how do we do that? Well, look again at verse 15. Peter says it starts in the heart. He says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That means that we set Jesus apart as ultimate. I spoke earlier about this, that Jesus comes to transform us by making himself the center of our lives. And that is what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, that you give Jesus his rightful place, a place that nothing else, no one else can touch that he is preeminent, he is ultimate. Jesus said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means to hallow something means to make it ultimate. The name of God is the, is the most extremely, outrageously wonderful and precious thing in our lives. Jesus has to be, for us, the center. Remember, he is our hope. He doesn't just show us how to find it. He is our peace. He is our joy. He's not just the guide to show us the way. He is the embodiment of those things. So Peter says your relationship with Jesus can't be a side project. He's got to be the centerpiece. Sanctify him as Lord because that's who he is. And because he holds that place in our lives, Peter says you should always be ready to explain it. 
Always be ready to give an account, to make a defense. Everyone who asks you about the hope that is in you, be ready to share that hope. That means we share the gospel of Jesus as the explanation for our lives. You ought to be able to share Jesus, not just as a nice idea that people should believe, but he is the explanation for my whole life. He is the explanation of the hope that is within me. Peter, this is the second time Peter's told us to do this. In chapter 2, he said that the church's mission is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which means that we share the gospel because we have been gripped by it. We share Jesus because we have come to know him. The gospel has changed our hearts. Now, most most Christians struggle to do this. We struggle with sharing our faith with evangelism. I'm one of them. Believe it or not, I am. Uh, even as a pastor, I struggle with it too. But you know, this, this verse should encourage us because you know what Peter's calling us to do here? It's not a sales pitch. A lot of times we don't want to share Jesus because we feel like, we feel like it's like an, almost an insincere thing. It's a sales pitch. It's a presentation. Um, and that's not what Peter's saying at all here. He's saying... Um, and I'll repeat it. He's saying that the gospel should be the explanation for your life. Not a, not a side project, not a sales presentation. This is who I am. This explains what I do and how I live. Jesus explains me. He is the source of my hope. Um, specifically in this context, how does this work? If somebody comes along, either in Peter's day or in our day, and says, now wait a minute, why would you bless somebody who just hurt you? Why would you pray for their good? Why would you love them? Why would you serve them after they just did you wrong? Right? And what's, what's the account for your hope? What's the explanation of your life? Well, what we say is, we say, my whole life is built on Jesus, who loved me and saved me when I was an unworthy sinner. I didn't deserve it. My life is built on a divine man who suffered righteously for me, and now I can suffer righteously for him. You see, the gospel explains it. It's your hope. Another question that comes up in this text, how, why would you live righteously? Why would you live a good moral life when it's so much easier and at times even more popular to do the opposite? To which we reply, you might say it differently than this, I'm just going to quote what Peter says, because Jesus bore my sins in his body on the cross so that I might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds I've been healed. That's why I live differently. It's not about me. It's because of what's been done for me. Right? It's the hope that explains us. And so in context, Peter is saying right here, when you are tempted to fear, when you are, are maybe intimidated by those who do wrong to you, or maybe a culture that, that seems broadly, that seems against who we are and what we believe, Peter says, all the more, be on your toes. Go on the offensive be eager and ready to share the hope that is within you because it's only that hope that we've experienced that's going to give hope to the world. And so this is not a sales presentation for us. This is not a battle to be won. The goal of sharing Jesus is not to prove myself right and someone else wrong. No, it is an appeal to someone else based on the great hope that I've experienced, that you've experienced because Jesus Christ has saved you. That's why we're told to do it with gentleness and reverence. It's not a battle to be won. It's an appeal. If he's done this for me, then he can do this for you. And even if it feels like the world is against us, uh, Peter says, you keep pointing them to the grace and the hope of Jesus. That's who we are. 
We are a people of blessing. We are a people who have been saved and are being changed by Jesus Christ, and therefore we can live in an absolutely countercultural way. We have a hope that's within us that's worth sharing. And now as we close, I, just, I think all of this begs the question, um, is the hope of Jesus the explanation for your life? Or maybe to say it this way, do you, do you have within you the kind of hope that Peter's talking about today? Um, remember what I said before, J- Jesus doesn't specialize in makeovers. Uh, the Christian life is not a personal upgrade. Uh, it's not an improvement of our circumstances. You and I, we are not just religious versions of our former selves. The Christian life is this, it is the very person of Jesus Christ forgiving your sins and reconciling you to God. It is not something that, that uh, comes along to improve circumstance or, or simply improve relationships and morality. It has to bring transformation because it is the ultimate thing. It's the ultimate thing that God has done for the world and he's done it for us. Jesus Christ has come to save us and to be our hope. All other forms of hope are not only fleeting and temporary, but they, they, they're just based on circumstance. That's why we cross our fingers sometimes and say, I hope things get better for me. But that, even if they do, even if we're lucky, even if, we're, even if God maybe just is, is gracious to us and things do get a little better, it's only a matter of time before it swings the other way again and before we're standing in a funeral home or lying on an operating table and all hope has been dashed. Okay? That is a temporary hope, and it's not hope at all. See, the hope that Peter is talking about is a confident assurance, not in ourselves, not in this world, but in God, who has loved us to the full through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, listen, because this hope exists, your ability to endure hardship is built on the power and the promise of Jesus, not on your own uh, will and fortitude. Your ability to uh, to experience relational and moral transformation That's rooted in Jesus. He's the only one that can change a person's heart. And then your witness to the world. Our witness to the world is not to say, look at me, but it's to say, look at him. The explanation for the hope that is within me, it's all Jesus Christ, 100%. It's what he's done for me. And see, this hope comes to us as a free gift. I I said it earlier that none of us have earned our way in this room. We receive grace as a gift. It comes to us uh, freely. You, you, you can't earn it. You simply trust the giver. We turn from our sins. We turn from our false hopes that we're grasping for. And instead, we roll all of our faith. We roll our trust. We roll all of our weight onto Jesus. He becomes the centerpiece, our Savior and our Lord. And he offers that freely to us today. And so my encouragement to you is this. If, if you don't have that hope within you, or maybe if you're just unsure, uh, that's why we're here. You have multiple ways that, that you can respond. You can check the bottom box on the little communication card that was in your seat, and I'll follow up with you, and we can have a, a conversation about it. You can come find me right after the service. Stay and pray, okay? We, we, will, uh, we will be here after the fact. You come talk to me. Um, or I can connect you to someone uh, else who's here who, will, who would love to, to help you understand what it is to have this kind of hope. My hope for you today is that if there's any wrestling, if there's any doubt or confusion when it comes to this, you wouldn't walk out the door uncertain. 
that you wouldn't try to walk a tightrope the rest of the week, but that you could walk firmly on solid ground by knowing this hope for yourself. And we can, we can help you with that. That's, that's why we started this church. Jesus offers us something that doesn't just help us get along. He offers us something that becomes an all-encompassing new life. And so let's thank him for it in prayer. Father, would you grant us in this moment deep gratitude? Sometimes I forget, I just lose sight of how wonderful you are to me. And I pray, Lord, that if any of us find ourselves there, that if maybe it's because of hardship, maybe we're going through something right now and we've just lost, we, just, we're just, we don't see clearly what you're up to and how loving and how good you are in this moment. Father, would you bring us back to center right now? Would you, Lord, remind us in this moment that despite all of our sins, all of our failures, despite all of my willful rebellion against you, Lord, throughout my 35 years, Father, you have loved us to the full in Jesus Christ. You have made uh, your son, your precious, beloved son, you have made him to come to earth and die so that we might have life instead. You love us that much. And Father, thank you that, that it is not for us a daily exercise to earn or maintain what we have, but we have an inheritance a blessing reserved for us that cannot fade, that cannot be taken away. We will receive the fullness of all that you've promised because you have sealed us as your children by faith. Father, get, grant us so much gratitude in light of those truths. And Father, I pray that you'd minister to us uh, today. I, I know I can, I can say it for a fact for me and all of us in this room, that there is some issue of relationship, morality, influence, or all three, that we, we're just not doing well right now. We're struggling. And Father, we need your grace. We need, Lord, you to transform our hearts. We need you to be gracious perhaps to other people who, uh, who we have broken relationship with. You need to, Father, we, we need, we need to, to grant forgiveness and be a blessing on our own terms, or perhaps we need to receive that from someone else. Father, Will you bind those things together where, Lord, where things perhaps feel beyond our own control? Father, we, we will trust you and ask of you that you will make it so, that you will heal broken relationships. Father, that you, will, that you would use our, um, our, our lives, our morality, that you would use a, a righteous life, Lord, not to esteem us, but to point other people to you that perhaps other people would see how we live and it wouldn't make any sense to them and it would give us an opportunity for witness to point them to our hope. Father, um, where, where we fail and fall short in these areas, we fall upon your grace and we thank you that we can. Um, we're not going to walk out of this, this room today trying harder to do better. We're going to walk out of this room empowered by your grace to live for you. And I pray, Lord, that we'll know the difference today. So make it so, we ask, by the power of your Holy Spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen.